Hello, comic creators. Welcome to the Commerce Connection podcast, where Andy Schmidt and I discuss the news, topics, and information that you need to navigate your professional comic book career. Andy, how are you feeling? Uh, a little under the weather, Jamal. Um, so if I pass out, that's what happens. Well, if you pass out, I'm going to just keep going because. Sounds good. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear from me anyway. So. That's Thank fine. You. That's fine. Um, let's let's get started with the news. Um, the big story, well, one of the big stories is the came out of Comics Beat, and it was an analysis of the concept that one of the casualties of the pandemic that people may not really be aware of is the idea of comic book sales charts, because before the pandemic, um, organizations like Comicron and ICV two kind of crunch the numbers on comics to give people an idea of what comics were being sold, how well they were selling, and things like that. Now the the numbers were not the numbers were not completely accurate or absolute because in the comic book industry, unlike film or music or anything else, we don't actually track by and large the number of comic book readers who are buying comics. What we're tracking is the number of comic book shops that order comics and then have the comics in their inventory. Whether they sell those comics or not is really anybody's guess because of the nature of the way the comic book industry started. But during the pandemic, a lot of major publishers left Diamond and they went to Lunar and they went to other places and so now you have this fragmented situation where Diamond is not giving out their sales numbers. Lunar is not giving out their sales numbers. Digital comics like Comixology and Webtoons and everything like that, they're not giving out their sales numbers. So you have a situation where no one really knows which comics are selling well and which comics are not selling well. So you can't even really say, like with a book, it's one of the key tropes in selling a book is this is a best-selling novel. You can't say that in comics in 2023 because you don't know if it's a best-selling comic because you don't know how many issues it's sold. So Andy, as a publisher and as someone who actually handles distribution and things like that, how much is the lack of accurate sales data, how much does that impact your business? Well, <clears throat> As a publisher, like I have pretty accurate data on what our comics are selling, right? Because the distributors give me order numbers and then I send them, I send them comics. Um, but, uh, but not having an idea of like where we are in the mix of kind of everybody else is, is, um, you know, it just kind of feels like you're out in the ocean, like with no wind or direction, right? Mm -hmm. like just kind of. Like, well, I don't know, are we doing as well as they are? Like, you know, or or is that book, you know, what are, what are the trends going on? You know, keeping track of that stuff isn't life and death um, or shouldn't be. But um, like, I think any publisher that doesn't have a fundamental understanding of like sort of the core of what they do and what they do well um, is going to struggle in, in an environment where everything seems so wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but 
yeah, I mean, right now, like, hey, last month Batman Spawn number one came out. Like, maybe that was the highest selling comics. Well, maybe not. I mean, probably it was. But what does that even mean? Are we talking about, you know, like 500,000 copies? Are we talking about 150,000 copies? Like, I, it, it makes it difficult to set sort of like your targets and your goals, I think, if you don't kind of know what the whole lay of the land is. Mm. Um, I don't begrudge the distributors not putting numbers out. Um, I always thought that was kind of strange. They did. Um, you know, like in the book world, you, you know, that's usually behind a paywall at the very least with you know, book scan or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be useful. It'd be useful data. You know, a lot of what, you know, publishers try to do is they try to create comp titles. So like, hey, we're thinking about putting this book together. What are three or four other books that are similar to it, similar price point, you know, similar audience, that sort of thing. And they go, how did they do? And then you look up that data and you can get a picture of how you think your book should do. Um, and you can't really do that right now with with comics in the direct market. Um, you can do it for in the book market because BookScan works in the bookstore market. But yeah, I mean that's I mean it's it's a little bit flying blind right now. Well, I think there's also a wider kind of impact on the general market and the general perception of comics because i think one of the things that the movie industry does very well is they promote themselves so they will you know sunday night you'll we'll get the numbers coming out of hollywood reporter or variety or whatever that says this movie made a hundred million dollars and that will prompt other people to go and see the movie to a certain extent because fear of missing out you don't really get that in comics because, well, nobody knows how many issues of anything got sold. So it's like, well, is this a bestseller or is this a good seller or not? The idea, like the New York Times bestseller charts for books is a kind of way to promote certain books in the industry. If we don't have those kind of numbers because everybody's keeping their numbers secret, people assume that there is no best-selling book. So it kind of drags down everybody. Right. And the flip side of that argument is, well, if sales aren't good, are they going to fall even further? And, and I don't know what sales are like for everybody else, but I can tell you right now that this, the sense I get is that this market is tightening its belt right now. Mm. Um, started a few months ago, seems to be continuing, and that makes it tougher. You know, with our books that uh, came out six months ago that I thought were really strong and were going to do well, did great. Our books that are in that same zone right now are still doing well, but not as well. And these, this is due, I believe, with market forces, you know, far outside of uh, <laughs> Amy Schmidt's control. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not, these are market forces, right? I mean, it's like fighting a hurricane. Right. So um, how long will that keep going? I don't know. Um, but it's um, that seems to be what's going on. And I, and I talk with a lot of other publishers and they're experiencing the same thing, which is why I feel a little bit comfortable saying it. it's not just me, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's really, it's really tough right now. I think there's a bit of a trust issue um, throughout the industry. Creators having trouble trusting publishers have been a lot of, a lot of that in the news cycles lately. Um vendors that publishers deal with places like printers and distributors and things like that they're 
they're, I mean, it just seems tight right now. I don't know if it's just money is tight or what, but things are tight. No, Which that would make sales charts more useful. Mm -hmm. But I think the fear is like, nobody wants to be like, hey, my books are selling this and like come out and be like, we're really proud of these sales numbers. And then have some other company that they don't even know go, our sales numbers are twice that. Like everybody's afraid of being the one that looks bad. Right, right. So it seems like ironically, the most accurate or the most transparent kind of not really sales numbers or dis but distribution numbers comes from like Kickstarter and Webtoons. Because if you go on somebody's Kickstarter page, you know exactly how many backers they have and you know exactly what they backed at what price. And you could figure out like how much money this, because it says it right on the top of the page, how much money this book generated, period. Yeah, you can figure out the, the revenue, right? Mm -hmm. You can't figure out profit though. Because no, not profit, but even in any sales number, you can't really figure out profit. I mean, you know, a movie makes a hundred million dollars, you don't know how much the movie made cost to make, so right. good or bad. Yeah. But the sales number itself has it has some kind of inherent value that I think we're missing in the direct market because because reasons, yeah. But also, I mean, by the same token, you go to a crowdfunding campaign and you'll you'll see that they're not just selling a book. So it's not like right. book sales. It's mm -hmm. book sales plus posters, plus toys, plus URL. So there, there's still a lot to dig through and try and process. But but yes, there is value in inherently in knowing the, the total number. Mm -hmm. You still have to do a pretty deep dive to get to like, how many of the book did they sell? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And those numbers, and those numbers are... Um different from the direct market numbers too because those are direct to consumer numbers that's not a store buying the book and then maybe or maybe not selling those copies it's somebody actually bought the book so yeah somebody put their money down exactly exactly all right uh, moving on to a completely different segment of the industry you and i started talking late last year and the industry itself has been talking for months now about um ai art and AI scripts being used to generate comics and potentially undermine or end the careers of a significant segment of the population because they will be replaced by AI art. And one of the things we talked about was the idea of a class action court case being brought to kind of stop this process from happening. And last week or early this week, that case actually started in California. There is a class action lawsuit um, against the developers of the AI learning software and against Microsoft and against like several other people. And the claim is basically copyright infringement. So Andy, my question to you is, are you A, are you surprised about the case? B, what do you think the case means for AI art and let's call it organic comic book art going forward? I'm a little surprised uh, that there is a case just because, you know, um, comics creators aren't like well known for being good at organizing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our, our, our attempts to organize a union and that sort of thing as creators, it's never really materialized so 
this, in my mind, this came together really darn quickly. Now, it has implications beyond comic artists. I think that's part of it. Like it's a wider, a wider issue. Um, so I was a little surprised. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Um, Don't die. Uh, in terms of implications, like I'm really curious to see where it goes. I probably do not have a full understanding of, it, of exactly the legal argument um, that they're using. But if I understand the part of it correctly that I think I understand, I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting inroad for the case, but um, I, you know, what are their chances of success? I have no idea. If only I knew an attorney who could talk to it. So, Gamal. Well, um, can you kind of explain the, the crux of? Sure, sure. The, the idea is if AI is using images that they have scraped from the internet to actually inform the machine learning, and that's how the AI is able to produce images, then the legal argument is where they got the images from and what permission they had to use the images. Because most of these images are copyrighted images that belong to some person, some company, somebody. They're not just sitting out there. They didn't, if the AI only used public domain images, then there would be no case because it would be public, it would be public domain and that's fine. What the AI did though, what the programmers of the AI did was they had the, their system um, scrape billions of images that they did not own and they did not have permission to use. Now, the fundamental idea behind copyright is you have the right to say how your images are used. They completely ignored that and just decided to use the images anyway under a concept called fair use. Now, fair use is, is kind of a get out of jail free card for copyright infringement. If you satisfy certain criteria, then your infringement is considered fair use and then you do not have to pay anyone and you don't have to stop doing what you're doing. There's two problems with this, however. Three problems. The first problem is there is no precedent to actually define AI scraping as fair use because fair use is a multi-part test and you can't just decide that you actually passed the test and you moved on. You have to go through each element and then come to the conclusion that you are more or less likely to be fair use. The problem with that is that you can't determine fair use without actually going to court. So if no one, and this case will actually be one of the cases that determines whether or not all of this is fair use, the problem is all of these AI companies have already spent a considerable amount of time and money developing this system. If, and they're relying on fair use, if it's found in court that they don't have a fair use argument, then everything that they're doing is infringement. And they're going to, they will, the penalties for, and the legal fees will quickly destroy them. So, and the third problem is, I know I've talked a lot, but there's still more. The third problem is, the whole concept of fair use right now is up in the air because the Supreme Court is arguing a, or deciding a case revolving around what it fair use means. So it's like the AI 
companies have built this business model based on a very a very precarious legal position. So, A, I'm not surprised that there's a case this quickly because most of the time class action lawsuits are not organized by the people who are in the lawsuit. They're organized by attorneys who specialize in putting together class action lawsuits. And it's very easy for them to find a thousand or 10,000 of anybody if they want to sue because that's their whole job. So that's not surprising. The It's also not surprising that this goes beyond comics into other types of art. And I predict that whether they, the case goes to court or there's a settlement, what will happen to companies like Dolly or Midjourney is the same sort of thing that happened to companies like LimeWire and Napster. For all of you kids who are too young to remember, LimeWire and Napster was a file sharing service that kind of subverted copyright for music and images and computer programs and things like that. And they were basically sued out of existence. However, other companies came after them with a business model that was much more legally sound and palatable. And now you have companies like Spotify, you have Amazon Music, you have iTunes, which is basically the same thing but completely protected legal. So I think there will be other AI companies or you know, a company like Adobe or a company like Microsoft will just take it over and then they'll decide we have all the AI technology and you have to license it from us. And then they may or may not pay the artists you know, pennies on the dollar and there'll be licensing fees to actually use AI systems. And that's how it'll probably shake out because we're not going to go back to a point where there was no AI. That's not happening. So we now have to get to a point where AI is being used to kind of help somebody make some more money. That's what it sounds to me like that system is designed basically just to kind of go, yeah, it's wrong and we shouldn't allow it, but we're going to because there's money. To make. Yeah. Welcome to the American legal system. I mean, what do you, what do you mean? Right. Man, I should have been a lawyer. Should have been a lawyer. And then the comics uh, said, thought there was more money in comics. Okay, well, I mean, if to get into comics, you didn't have to necessarily spend a quarter of a million dollars to get the piece of paper that says you're in comics. Think about it. All right, that's fair. Less expensive to get it. There you go. There you go. Um, the last story that we're going to talk about is kind of a as a piece that I put together last week. It is a segment from the book that I'm working on now called The Business of Freelance Comic Book Publishing, which is the follow-up to the runaway hit, The Business of Independent Comic Book Publishing. And it talks about what the legal basis of freelance comics is. Because I think a lot of people are working in comics and they're freelancers in comics. They don't really understand what that means or why it is that's, that's happening. So just to set the stage, Andy, do you want to describe what you how you perceive this kind of process and then i will yes. confirm or deny whatever it is that you said yes a work made for hire uh agreement <clears throat> which you will often see um abbreviated to wfh work for hire uh agreement 
uh, is one in which um, <clears throat> basically if I'm if I'm offering you a work for hire gig, right, uh, to draw something, say, then I offer you money. Um, in return for that money, you give me all of the rights to the art that you generate. Mm -hmm. um, not for like your lifetime, but you know, for the for the piece that I'm commissioning, right? So uh, that means I get the copyright, I get all the right licensing rights, all of those rights, and you have no say in any of it after that whatsoever. Uh, <clears throat> and that's the gist of it. <clears throat> there are a couple of parameters around it, as I understand it. It has to be in writing. There has to be legal tender. Um, <clears throat> you know, both have to sign the contract. Um, and uh, and so forth, but basically that's it. I pay you; you give me all the rights to the art that you create. Yes, that is fundamentally that is the whole thing. the the only The only place that you left out is the the initial piece, because as far as intellectual property and copyright law goes, in general, if you create something, then you own what you created. So if you created, let's say, you created I don't know, Rocket Raccoon then you own Rocket Raccoon and you can do whatever you want with it in terms of generating revenue, deciding what happens to it and anything like that. The way you described it is accurate. If someone comes to you and says, I want you to do this for me and I'm going to own it, that piece of paper that you talked about that has to be signed transfers all of the rights to that intellectual property to the person who paid for it and creates a legal situation as if the person who paid for it is the one who actually created it, even though they didn't. This is a very specific um, section of copyright law called the work for hire provisions. And it is the basis for most of comic book production in, at least in North America and probably in North in Europe as well, because the vast majority of comics created by the big two, or the Big Ten, or even independent comics are not created solely by the people who make them. The vast majority of comics, some freelancers in there somewhere, the artist, the writer, the inker, the letterer, the colorist, but even farther than that, advertising, marketing, sales, distribution. The industry is, the foundation of the industry is freelance. And so the more that you understand the legal basis of what freelance is, the more you can actually understand how important that is to how comic books works overall. Yeah, and you didn't even get into the moral arguments about it. No, I did not get into the, the oral arguments about it because I'm going to have these segments that I'm putting together are going to be kind of leading up to the release of the book in September. So we will, you know, we can yeah. go deeper into it. But do you want to just touch on the, the moral yeah. aspects? <clears throat> I mean, a lot of people don't like it because, you know, you're you're giving up the rights to something. And Rocket Raccoon is a good example. Back in 1982, I think, when Rocket Raccoon was created, hmm. the idea that Rocket would be in live action mega hits and cartoons and all this sort of stuff was like, that, I mean, that's fantastical. Like, that's a silly idea. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but here we are. He's everywhere, and those creators don't don't really get to participate a whole lot in that. They, they yes. rely on the benevolence of Mickey Mouse 
to say, you know what, we did okay with this, therefore we're gonna cut you a check. But we get to decide that check or we get to say thanks or, or whatnot. And creators, for the most part, go into these contracts now understanding that. So at least, you know, but back in the 60s and before that, you didn't really understand what they were signing often. Yes. Um, so it is different from then to today. You know, people say, ah, oh, they're ripping me off the way they ripped off Kirby. Well, not really, because you knew. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's there are, there's other factors, you know, if you look at the, the history of comics that a lot of times in the, when you're talking about the 60s, 70s, um, there's actually a very anecdotal quote from Stan Lee that says a lot of the people in comics didn't even want to admit they were in comics. They said that they were right. doing something else. And so the idea of fighting to own the stuff that they created was didn't even make sense to them because they didn't even want to admit that they created these things. So, and then you get into the, the situation where you are correct. If somebody creates Rocket Raccoon or they create uh, Kitty Pride or the Winter Soldier and they do not, they get paid up front. So if the, the character or the comic or anything else, if the whole thing bombs the person who the freelancer doesn't really care because they got paid up front if the comic book never comes out freelancer also doesn't really have to care because they got paid and you know there's a depending on how it's set up there's a low risk to the freelancer for creating right. comics because most comics don't make a profit and most comics do not become you know multi-generational um, transmedia mega hits. So the I, the idea that if you get into comics as a freelancer, it's low risk up front, but it's also low reward long term because, like you said, you don't get to own the T-shirts, toys, tchotchkes, or anything else. You just get what you got up front. Now, if there is none of that later on, there's no movie, there's no TV show, there's nothing, you still got what you got up front. So, you know, you take a smaller piece of something as opposed to a, you know, larger piece of something that may never happen. And most of the larger companies, and by most, I mean Marvel and DC at least, hmm. um, they have what they call it in their contracts, they have what's called the new character agreement. So if you're yes. creating a new character, there is some built-in aspect of sharing or whatever, you know, you get some piece of... Mm -hmm. In, depending on where it's where the characters use, um, those are still kind of iffy sometimes. Like I don't, I don't, you know, the Winter Soldier is a good case. Um, I remember because I worked, I was an editor on the Winter Soldier stuff, and I thought they'd worked out a really good deal. So that despite the fact that the Winter Soldier was Bucky, a pre-existing character, they managed to create a new character and gave Ed and Steve, the creators of Winter Soldier. This new character agreement, and then later I found out that you know there was there was some funny business that went on later. But um, I remember at the time actually being like really like happy for them, mm -hmm. and I thought like Marvel had really done the right thing here. Now I don't know what happened after that that uh, <laughs> it seems to have gone sour since then. But I remember at the time being like, oh, this is great. Like they did the right thing. Um, <clears throat> but you know those deals, you know, you don't get really get to negotiate those. It's the contract standard, and it is what it is, and. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also very difficult to like, you can't really like audit their books. Like you don't get that in, in, in your, in writing. Um, yeah. 
So it, it's 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 very difficult. Um, um, and there's there's royalties potentially, like so you can sign over the rights, but you get you know if the book sells past a certain threshold, you get royalties on the book. So there is more money that can be made in certain cases. But yeah, the, the flat out work for hire that's it is here's money I own it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so. We have actually covered a lot of ground here. And once again, I believe we've gone over time, um, which means we probably should just extend the time as opposed to like pretending we're going to do it one time and then like always being late. I mean, we'll talk about that. We're being extra. We're giving you yeah. extra. Yeah, time. yeah. Super yeah. size. Super size. Yeah. All right. So if you guys want to actually be part of these ongoing conversations that we're having on our Discord, in our live uh, Q&A sessions um, or anything like that, we're going to leave the links to join Comics Connection. Um, if you'd like to see more of the Comics Connection podcast, please like and subscribe. And until next time, have fun with your comic. All right, you're done. I will edit both pieces um, probably today and then post them probably tomorrow. Okay, can we plug the courses that start next week? Uh, yes, just send me the links and I will put the courses, because I put the courses in the last video as well. Yeah, they're in the same, that's the same links. Okay, then yeah, I'll put, I'll make sure that all that goes in there. Okay. All right. All right. Feel better, sir. Thanks. Later. Bye.